You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this is our very last episode of the season before we take a much-needed break for the summer. Um, and we are joined by a very special guest to tackle a, 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 such an important topic that is near and dear to our hearts, the topic of breast cancer, screening, and early detection. Uh, Dr. Liz O'Reardon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So before we get into today's topic, um, just want to briefly recap the last episode. If you did not have a chance to check that out, definitely go back and tune in. We talk about the microbiome, and we have a microbiologist, Andrea, um, who is able to debunk a, a lot of myths and misconceptions and set, set the record straight. Um, we talk a lot about those at-home microbiome tests, which may or may not be a waste of your money. Um, so definitely go and check that episode out if you have haven't already. So let's get into it. I, I want to introduce our guest, uh, Dr. Liz O'Reardon, who is a consultant breast surgeon. And Liz, you also have your PhD. Is that yeah, right? That's right. In the molecular oh. oncology of thyroid cancer, the things you have to do to get a job. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. No big deal. Um, so Dr. Reardon is an international speaker, broadcaster, and award-winning co-author of The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control. In 2015, at age 40, she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer while working as a consultant breast surgeon. A local regional recurrence in 2018 forced her to retire as a surgeon, and her memoir, Under the Knife, will be published in July 2023, and you can pre-order a copy. We will link in our show notes at unbound.com backslash books backslash under dash the dash knife. Um, during chemotherapy, she just casually started an award-winning blog about her experiences. Again, we'll link to that. It's liz.oreardon.co.uk. And she now talks all over the world about how to improve patient care. In 2020, she launched her podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant, that talks about the things no one else does, like sex, death, and body image. Liz is passionate about promoting the benefits of exercise in particular for her cancer patients. You must go give her a follow on Instagram. It's amazing. Um, you can follow her at O'Reardon Liz. And again, we will link to all of this. Thank you again, Liz, for joining us. Um, your, your perspective as both a researcher, as a clinician, and as someone who has lived this disease um, is just absolutely invaluable. We're so excited to speak with you. Oh, and again, I love what you're doing. I think it's great that doctors are now talking to the patients and the general public and helping them understand what is happening and why things are being done to them. It's so important. Couldn't, Couldn't agree, agree more. more. <laughs> 
All right, so I'm just going to set the stage with some global statistics on breast cancer. So breast cancer is the most common cancer worldwide. Um, it surpassed lung cancer for the first time in the year 2020. It's the most common cancer in women in both developed and underdeveloped countries. And in 2020, 2.3 million women were diagnosed globally. Um, breast cancer in men is something we don't talk about as much, but it is a thing. Um, it accounts for less than 1% of diagnoses, but because it's so rare, there's less research and awareness. And also because of that, um, mortality rates for breast cancer are higher in, in, in men versus women, about 19% higher. Um, and there are also disparities in the way we care for men versus women um, who have have breast cancer. And so, I think, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. I think we'll, we're obviously going to talk a lot about screening and, and vigilance and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think the most obvious reason for some of these disparities is because breast checks, self checks, um, you know, evaluations um, for your, you know, your breasts is much more common and routine in women than in men. And I think it's sometimes misunderstood that just because there's not a visible breast there that there isn't memory tissue there yeah and they're often diagnosed at a later stage which is why they don't do as well Interesting. because of all of that absolutely so andrea do you want to set the stage talk about some of the different types of breast cancer yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and Dr. Reardon will, will maybe she'll chime in on, on staging breast cancer itself. But a lot of times, you know, when people are diagnosed with cancer, whether it's breast cancer or pancreatic cancer or lung cancer, we often talk about stages of that. And that's often related to how the tumor, the cancer itself has um, spread or not spread from the origin site. So when we name breast, when we name cancers, we name them based on the origin site or where the cancer started. So breast cancers are cancers that originate in the breast tissue. And, um, and then of course they can be staged based on where they're localized, what cells they're affecting and, and if they've spread to other body sites. So there's a lot of different types. I'll talk about some of the most common ones. So the first type would be ductal carcinoma in situ. And in situ means in place. So basically what that means is that is a cancer, that is a breast cancer that has not invaded, meaning it is still localized in the breast tissue itself. Um, so we often will call this a non-invasive or a pre-invasive breast cancer. Um, in addition, that can progress to a later stage type of cancer where we will call that a an invasive ductal carcinoma. So now that that's gone from a ductal carcinoma in situ and now it's spread. So now we're going to call it an invasive ductal carcinoma or embrace so invasive breast cancer. That ductal cancer are cells that have the ability to spread, but they might not when you're diagnosed, whereas DCIS cannot spread because the cells haven't got that final mutational change. Exactly, exactly. And so from there, you will have, um, there's, again, there's other types of cancer. There are other types of carcinomas that are in situ, like a lobular carcinoma in situ. Um, and then, of course, other cancers of concern would be the triple negative breast cancer, which we'll talk a little bit about. Yeah. This one is really, um, and, and very quickly, invasive breast cancer is about 70 to 80% of diagnosed breast cancers. Triple negative breast cancers are about 15% of diagnosed breast cancers. And these are 
clinically important because they're challenging to treat. And the reason they're challenging to treat is we call them triple negative because they're missing three proteins that are often present on on breast cancer cells. This is the um, estrogen receptor protein, the progesterone receptor protein, and then another protein called HER2. Now, these are called triple negative because these breast cancer cells are not producing these proteins, which means that Therapies that target those proteins are not going to be effective on triple negative breast cancers. Um, Go ahead. So what I would say is I make it a little bit more simple. So you've got breast cancer that can't spread and that's DCIS. Lobular carcinoma in situ actually isn't pre-cancer. It means you have a busy breast and you're more likely to get breast cancer in the future, but we wouldn't in the UK operate on it. You've then got the part of the breast where the cancer came from, and about 80% come from the ducts that carry milk from the breast tissue to the nipple, that's ductal cancer. You then have lobular cancer, which we think comes from the lobules of the breast, the glands that produce the milk. And then every ductal and lobular cancer can express one, two, or three proteins on its cell. And that can be ER positive, um, HERT positive or triple negative where they don't express any. So ductal and lobular cancers can both be triple negative or triple positive. It's like a third factor. And then you get to the stage and the stage simply tells you how big the cancer is, is in the lymph nodes in your armpit or has it spread beyond the breast. It's really complicated. It's really it complicated. And, and a lot of people don't, you know, they hear breast cancer and they just think it's an all or nothing thing. And, and that's mm. something that we talked about at length with cancer more broadly is that it's it's hundreds of different diseases that we use it a is. catch-all. And there's all these genetic components and individual factors. Um, there's one, one fourth type I think that's important is the inflammatory breast cancer. And this yes. is you know, this is a very aggressive cancer. It has a a high mortality rate. This is, um, the cancer cells block the lymph nodes, the lymph vessels in the skin. And it's often, um, you get like this redness on the breast itself. Um, and this is more rare, but again, a very aggressive and and inflammatory cancer. And it often looks like mastitis. So if you, if you've got a hot red infected breast and it hasn't settled with antibiotics, which we would normally give, then you need to go back and make sure it gets followed up because it could be this type of cancer. And that's where the peau d'orange comes from. It's kind of like cellulite, a bit like an orange skin. That's the classic thing you see in textbooks. So Liz, here in the U.S., we recently updated our, uh, the, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force just yeah. updated their, their guidelines. And I don't know if the change also happened in, the, you're based in the in the U.K.? Yeah, no, it hasn't happened in the U.K., but I've been doing a lot of reading into what's happening in the U.S. It's really interesting. It is interesting. So previously, the guidelines were at age 50. That's when you should start getting regular mammograms. um, Yeah. Or excuse me, uh, yes, excuse me, regular mammograms. Yep. And now that's been lowered. This is a very big deal in the world of, you know, preventive health and and public health. Lower to age 40. Um, So biannual mammograms beginning at age 40. And this is based on, you know, an assessment of trends. We're seeing uh, an increase, a rise in the number of um, diagnosed breast cancer, um, and also a lot of disparities in outcomes. We see persistently high rates among African-American women. um, Yeah, they don't do as well, do they? No, they die at a rate, twice the rate of white women at the same age. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and there's, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think, I think 
one thing I just want to maybe address, because often we hear a lot like, oh, well, you know, uh, there's so many toxins, everybody's getting cancer at an earlier age. And like, you know, a lot of this is related to better diagnostics, improved surveillance. We have more effective methods to target and treat. And so, you know, while we're recognizing more breast cancer, it's not necessarily a function of simply more incidents. It's also improved diagnostics. And exactly. if you diagnose it earlier, the mortality rate and the prognosis is better. So shifting mm-hmm. this to earlier when we catch kind of this this inter, you know, this interim population, that's going to improve health trends overall. Yeah. You oh, answered my question. question. <laughs> Sorry, I, I think I said so I think the average age of the breast cancer is now more common in women in the 45, where it used to be 50 or 55. I think we are a unhealthy nation now we don't exercise we drink a lot more alcohol we don't eat well and i think we those are three things that are all shown to increase the risk of many cancers including breast so it's there are so many things going on yeah absolutely so so how do you feel liz about that age being lowered in the uk it's a screening thing that you get for free and for to screen something you have to be able to pick it up at an early stage where treatment will make a difference to the outcome and it has to be common enough to make it worthwhile screening every woman because if the pickup is very, very small, you're spending an awful lot of money on a public health program, screening an awful lot of women with a very small pickup rate. Mm-hmm. And we know that mammograms work because they pick up white cancer on a black breast. And once you reach 50 in the menopause, your breasts become less dense. So they look less white. They look more black. So tiny cancers are easy to see. We're trying to pick up cancers that are two or three millimeters in size. When you are young, you have dense breasts because you're still having periods, they're active. We know dense breasts can increase the risk of getting breast cancer. They're also harder for cancers to be seen on a mammogram. We also know that breast cancer isn't very common in women in their 40s. It is in your 45 and 50, but in 40-year-olds, it's still not very common. So you're doing an awful lot of mammograms to pick up something that's rarer to find. And there's the risk of finding things like cysts, like normal lumps and bumps are going to lead to overdiagnosis and overworry. And mammogram, cancers can still appear between mammograms. They're called interval cancers. They may not be ready to be seen at the time. So women are like, oh, I'll have a mammogram, I'm fine. I think there are a group of women who should be screened earlier, and those are definitely the African-American population, people with a moderate family history, people who are at high risk. I think that does make sense. But my worry is it's patients driving something that may not be good for them, that cancers may be missed. Um, and it all comes back to screening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so, I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, you, you walk this line of of balance, right? You know, we we and not just in cancer, right? We see sometimes over treatment or over diagnosis in a lot of things, right? People demanding antibiotics when they don't have a bacterial infection and so on and so forth. So, you know, and and then of course, you know, if we have increased vigilance, then you have increased attention on misinformation in, in that particular sphere. So again, it's it's a balance, right? You know, you want to improve health outcomes, but you don't want people to be unduly afraid or, um, no. you know, imp- increasing health anxiety or things like that. It's, it's And I think if you, if you get a call back from a mammogram, that fear with your phone waiting to go back to have another scan, to potentially have a biopsy, potentially have an operation to remove something, that mental anguish is awful. And I think part of it might be fueled, sorry, because there are lots of young girls, young women with breast cancer on Instagram and TikTok. Mm. but they are the minority. 
most women with breast cancer are over the age of 60. Half the women are over the age of 60. And they're not on social media talking about it. So you get this biased opinion that it's happening to young women everywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is such an important point. You know, I think people need to remember that social media is not a representative sampling of what's happening in reality. And and often certain topics are getting undue attention that maybe do not need to have that kind of attention. So, so Liz, I I know that you talk a lot about self exams, and yes, I want to hear what what you have to say about this. Um, that's actually how I found a lump in my breast. Um, mm-hmm. I was twenty nine years old. I was in the shower. I was doing a self exam, and um, you know, I I I am Ashkenazi Jewish. I have a strong family history of breast cancer. My grandmother had breast cancer at an early age. Had to have a mastectomy. My my mother had to have a lumpectomy, and so I ended up seeing a breast surgeon. And it was unbelievable how that visit changed my life. He was talking, I was again, 29 years old. This is before I had my children and and we knew we wanted to start a family, my husband and I. And he was talking about prophylactic um, uh, mastectomies. There was even talk about hysterectomies and he was ready to, yes, he was ready to, you know, to, to move forward with this. Anyway, I will, I'll talk more about it. I ended up going for, for, um, genetic testing and, and all that stuff. And I did not go down that road. Um, but the health anxiety that was, oh my goodness, I must've lost at least 10 pounds. I was a nervous wreck during that time period. Um, so anyway, sorry for, sorry for that. Um, you know, detour. No, thank you. It's, <laughs> it's really important to share that kind of information. A lot of women don't realize Ashkenazi Jews have a really strong chance of having the BRCA gene. Right. So Liz, can you talk and maybe yeah. this is, maybe you could also share how you came to learn that you had mm. breast cancer and, and then talking about self-checks and let's yes, talk about I'm gonna it. Put, <laughs> I'm going to put my hands up and say, I never checked my breasts. I was a breast surgeon. I'm not going to get breast cancer. It's not going to happen to me. I never checked. No one shows you how to do it at school or at university. I only knew how to do it because I'm a breast surgeon, so I'm taught to do it properly. And I first found a lump. I just got engaged. My husband had left me, my fiance at the time, for eight weeks to go sailing around the Northwest Passage, that bit between kind of Canada, Arctic and Russia. And I found a cyst in the bath. And in my head, it's breast cancer. I'll be dead in a year. I'll lose my hair. He won't want to marry me. It's the end of the world. Howling on the sofa. And my boss the next day said, what's wrong? And she managed to squeeze me into the colorect- the breast cancer clinic because I was a surgeon at the time and it was just a cyst. But that feeling of, oh my God, this is hideous. I suddenly got it. I'd had a couple of cysts when I was 39. I'd had a normal mammogram and a normal ultrasound. And one morning I was getting out of the shower. I looked in the mirror and I saw a lump in my cleavage and I swear it wasn't there the day before. And it was only my mum who made me get it checked out. Mum is just a cyst, but, but it might not be. Oh, fine. Okay. Now, doctors tend to get weird things. So my mammogram was normal. I had an ultrasound. And this is the thing. Because I do ultrasounds myself, um, I turned to look at the screen when I was having my ultrasound and I saw a cancer. I didn't need to wait for the biopsy. I knew it was big. I knew I need chemo. I knew what my chance of being alive in 10 years was. Um, an MRI showed it was five and a half centimeters. I had chemo, which shrank it, but actually there was 13 centimeters of lobulate left after surgery. It was a really weird occult thing, but I never checked. And I realized it's like the first of the month, there are so many charities and people saying, I had to check your chebs or your tatters all right and do this. And it's a, it's a celebrity in the shower feeling their elbow to say it's the armpit. This is not how you do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, right, I'm going to, it's the first video I made. It's really badly fit with me and car sponges and lollipops showing 
you feel with the flat of your hand. And you should feel lying at 30 degrees, especially if you've got large breasts to lift them up and showing people how to know what a cancer would feel like just to get that education out there. Because we're not taught how to do it. Wow. No. That is unbelievable, Liz. Um, so do you, can you share a little bit more about where you yeah. are now today? Sorry, I, I just, I'm sure yeah, that our yeah, listeners no, sure, no, are, are curious. So I, I had a, I had chemotherapy first, which is often done to try and shrink a cancer down. And that means you can hopefully avoid a mastectomy. I've got small boobs. I ended up having a mastectomy anyway, and I realized I had a lot of cancer left. I had radiotherapy and I went on a drug called tamoxifen, which put me into an instant menopause. And I apologized to every patient I've ever treated when I didn't take their symptoms seriously, because, oh my God, my vagina's lined with sandpaper. I have no libido and I can't sleep because I'm dripping with sweat. You suddenly get it. Um, I went back to work for a year and then I had a lump of scar tissue just underneath my armpit and I was going to go flat because radiotherapy had made my implant become like a tight, painful tennis ball. But my surgeon said, let's just get an ultrasound of this bit of scar tissue. And it was a two and a half centimeter recurrence on my chest wall. And I didn't know. And I'm a breast surgeon. So that meant going flat, more radiotherapy, having my ovaries out going on different tablets and touch wood, I'm coming up to five years again for the second time. But that fear of recurrence, the fear of is this a cough or a real cough and what do I worry about? It's really hard. And as a breast surgeon, it's hard to know when to tell people that your cancer could come back in 30 years time. And these are the signs you need to look out for because you want to try and be positive. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing this. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we have people listening who now they're, you know, anxiety maybe is a little heightened or you know, can you share some advice you know how frequently should we be doing yeah, these self exams sure. and and what about you know the menstrual cycle should we do it on yeah, our period right. after a period let's talk about it great so i say although breast cancer is becoming more common one in eight women will get it that does mean that seven out of eight women won't so the odds for you are that you won't get it the only thing you really have in your favor is to check your breasts, especially if you're young. And breast cancer, as I said, can appear between mammograms. If you are still having periods, you should do it mid-cycle when your breasts are less lumpy, less hormonal. Forget the first of the month that you see online. It's the middle of your cycle. Just put a reminder in your phone. If you've gone through the menopause, then it doesn't matter what day you choose. And that's where the first of the month may be a time. But I would say, check your pee. Check your poo to see if there's blood in it. Check your moles. Check your genitalia. Have a day of just checking everything. Check inside your mouth for oral cancer if you smoke and you drink. It's really, really important to be self-aware, to spot things at an early stage. Yeah, it Liz, is I mean, that's that's such a such a good point, not just for breasts, but for everything. Um, you know, I'm I'm um I have a very mixed um heritage. I have some um French Canadian, I have some Native American, I also have some Scottish, and I only recently, you know, I'm starting to look at scheduling a dermatologist appointment to get, you know, a once over because yeah. I had some friends who were very fair skinned and they would go every single year and they had to get several, you know, pre-cancer and cancerous moles yeah. removed. And, and I think people, you know, work and life is stressful and busy and, you know, and we neglect kids, things. We we never use sunscreen. I got burnt every year on the beach. You know how many people go to the dentist regularly. So this is interesting. Um, I was speaking at a head and neck conference and there was a nursing conference and they offered a free oral check. And I think they picked up about 7% of the people attending the conference potentially may have had early signs of head and neck cancer. 
but no one had ever actually looked inside their mouth and looked under their tongue before so you know it's you just have to be vigilant yeah yeah it's great it's a great a great point and it's and it's also coupled with I think the point you made early on when we're talking about you know breast cancer prevalence and 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 routine exercise and good sleep hygiene all of those things you know cancers are in some ways, a a defect of our cells, but also our immune system not patrolling and recognizing them adequately. So all of the things that are good for your immune system health are also going to help, you know, reduce the likelihood of cancer progressing. And that includes, you know, exercise, healthy, diverse diet, rich in fiber, um, good sleep hygiene, all of those things are, are important for overall health. Exactly. Okay, so I have a question, and I apologize that my hydroponic herb garden is going. (laughs) So sorry if you hear water in the background. Um, All right, so because of my risk factors, I go for regular uh, mammograms, MRI, and ultrasound. And so we get lots of questions. What is a mammogram? You know, should some people get an MRI versus a mammogram? Can we talk about what's appropriate to different screenings? Great question. So mammogram is the basic test that anyone generally over 35, 40 will have, where your breasts are squished in two planes, kind of up and down and side to side. It takes about a minute. It is an uncomfortable pinch if you are young because your breasts are firm. It doesn't really hurt. Um, And you get the results in a week or two. That's the general way of screening. What they're doing is looking for small areas of calcification that are bits of the cancer in the ducts that look different to the normal breast tissue. MRIs are not good for screening because a screening test should be quick and simple, easy to perform, and most people will do it. MRIs are not fun, and I'm sure you know, Jess. For a breast MRI, you are lying face down with your boobs hanging and your forehead balancing on a piece of plastic, often with cod liver oil capsules taped to your nipples. In a very narrow tunnel for 40 minutes, it's very, very, very noisy. You're wearing headphones. It's not pleasant. They have to give you IV contrast that you can't have if you have kidney damage. You can't have any metal inside you. It's not fun. It's about an hour and a half of your day. It's not a good screening test. But mammograms, MRIs are very useful for young women with dense breasts with a high risk of breast cancer to see things. And if you have lobular cancer, that often doesn't show on a mammogram because lobular cancers grow in sheets instead of clumps. So if you've got lobular cancer, you should have an MRI just to see how big it really is. Ultrasounds are really great for looking at specific areas. So if there's an area that feels lumpy or you've got a new lump or a cyst, ultrasound is great, but it's not a reproducible screening tool because you've got one person using the probe back and forth over every centimeter of the breast, then up and down, and are they holding it exactly parallel to the skin? It's not reproducible. You don't have a load of images. It's done in real time. Whereas mammograms and MRIs, you've got the scans. They're looked at by two different people to double check. So it's realizing mammograms are the best thing for everybody. And a small number of people should have an MRI or an ultrasound, depending on what they find. Now, what is a thermogram? We get oh, a lot of don't questions. get me started. <laughs> What's going to happen? We had to so, debunk something on this yes, episode. Yes, we did. Oh, there's so much. I'm about to do a thing about bras causing breast cancer. Don't oh, go there. Gosh, don't no, no. Oh, gosh. The theory is underwired bras cause breast cancer right. because the underwire stops lymph fluid flowing in the breast and causes a buildup of toxins. And it's yes, based it's on a book from the 60s toxins. by anthropologists. It's like toxins. It's so always the a buildup under- of toxins. The underwire sits below your breast and lymph fluid drains upwards towards the armpit and lymph yeah. fluid doesn't contain toxins that cause cancer. It's bullshit. No. Anyway, no. thermograms. 
this is being seen more and more in kind of health spas and wellness and functional clinics. And what they say is cancers are really active. So they have a really strong blood supply and a thermogram will see that increased area of heat from all that blood and pick up a cancer. But why is that bollocks? The whole point of screening is to pick up a cancer at a tiny stage. Am I allowed to say bollocks? I have. Pick up a cancer <laughs> at a tiny stage before it's big enough to spread. So if you are picking up a cancer with a strong blood supply, you're like three years too late. Right. And secondly, most breast cancers don't have a large blood supply. I've removed hundreds of them. They're not very bloody. They don't have active blood vessels you cut compared to a bowel cancer. And the chance of you having breast cancer in your 20s is still really, really tiny. One in 2,000 women. They are absolutely pointless. But people are paying four or 500 pounds thinking, or dollars, my mammogram's normal. I'm safe for a couple of years. No evidence. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's another one of these things that is promoted by this wellness industry to oh. exploit and prey on people who exactly. maybe have some of these health anxiety related issues have maybe fallen prey to some of these fake claims about toxins and, yeah. you know, and this, and, and, and of course it's not evidence-based. It's not endorsed by any sort of, you know, legitimate or credible radiology or cancer organization. And if it, if it worked, then every doctor would recommend you had a thermogram instead of a mammogram. That doesn't happen. Correct. So Liz, we get a lot of questions from women with different breast sizes, some small chested, yeah. some large chested. Are there differences in the way that we screen for breast cancer based on breast size? No. no. Okay. It doesn't matter how big or how small your breasts are. Anybody can get breast cancer. The risk is the same. And you have a mammogram, whether you're an A cup or a J cup. But it's important to know if you have implants, if you have had a breast augmentation, you can't have your mammogram done at like a supermarket screening van. You have to have it done at a hospital provider because you have special x-ray paddles to push the breast tissue off the top of the implant. Interesting. Now, my mom, actually, I'm so proud of her. You know, she was about to schedule her uh, her mammogram, but she recently got her COVID booster. So, Andrea, do you want to maybe just talk briefly about why sometimes it's recommended that that women hold off a little? Yeah, absolutely. So so this is this has been noted after COVID vaccination, but it's not unique to that specific vaccination. I've actually developed this after like my Tdap. But basically what happens is when you're getting an intramuscular injection in one of the arms, you're eliciting an immune response, right? The immune system is responding to that antigen that you've been injected with. It's mounting a response. And as a result, you're activating immune cells. They're communicating, they're congregating, and they're often doing that in the axillary lymph nodes in your armpits. So in some people after vaccination, they can develop a swelling of that lymph node, which is called lymphadenopathy. And what that can do is it can obscure the imaging that will be done during a mammogram. It also can look like a white haze on a mammogram and could lead to a false positive reading when it's in fact a swelling of a lymph node that is unrelated to cancer and is simply a a function of your immune system being activated. And we also had a lot of people being referred for query breast cancer with involved lymph nodes when it was actually a reaction to the vaccine. So yeah, wait a month. Exactly. And it's one of those situations where normally people are getting vaccines at, you know, unrelated times, but all eyes are on this vaccine, billions of people. Um, So there's this heightened attention to it. Um, I typically develop lymphadenopathy for all sorts of things. Um, But I think the recommendation in the U.S. is to wait six weeks after vaccination. Yeah. Um, before scheduling your mammogram. Yeah, that seems sensible. 
And unfortunately, this is being misconstrued as the COVID vaccine is causing breast cancer or causing lumps and cysts and all that stuff, which is not true. It does. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's talk about genetic testing. Ooh, yes. So I mentioned, you know, my experience found a lump, was assessed for risk factors, and right away the breast surgeon said, we got to get you a genetic test. And so I, I remember the genetic counselor called me and asked me so many detailed questions. It was to determine my eligibility for the, yeah. for the test and to see whether it would be covered by insurance, because that's the reality here. Um, and so lots of questions about, you know, I mentioned my grandmother was diagnosed the age of diagnosis. I mean, things that I didn't know. So I was calling up relatives I'd spoken to in, you know, over a decade. And so anyway, so long story short, I was eligible. They did the blood draw. They did the genetic test. Thankfully, I am not a carrier um, of, of, of the BRCA gene, um, genes, excuse me. And so, and Klausi, oh my gosh. And also they did, they screened for all kinds of other markers for, for cancers. And I didn't have any of those. I was very, very pleasantly surprised. Um, and, but even despite that, my lifetime risk is still 25% and I have to go for that regular screening. So Liz, can you talk about, you know, genetic testing? When do you recommend it for, for patients and such? Yeah. Like we get asked this a lot, especially when, after Angelina Jolie came out with her BRCA diagnosis. Um, basically if you only have one person in your family diagnosed with breast cancer, and they are over the age of 45, then your risk is not increased and you don't need to worry. Genetic breast cancers tend to happen at a younger age. So if you have two first degree relatives, say a mum and a sister, and they're diagnosed around the age of 40, 45, then you could be at a moderate risk. And if there's three or four relatives or someone has had bilateral breast cancer, your risk increases. And what geneticists do is ask you about your family history. And if you're an orphan, you might not know any of it. We also know that people who get triple negative breast cancer under the age of 50 could be a new genetic mutation and Ashkenazi Jew. So it's all based on your family history, but it's how close are they to you and how old were they when they were diagnosed? If, and also it's important to remember your mum and your dad, or your mum and your mum's family history don't add together. So if you have two grands, that's still the same as one granny. And if she was over 45, you're not at any increased risk. Genetic testing is really hard because there are so many questions that are involved for you to decide, do you want to know? Because if you end up having a BRCA gene or the PALB2 gene or the CHECK gene, you have to work out, are you going to have your breasts removed? Or do you want regular screening? Or do you want to know? Are you going to have your ovaries removed? And what happens if you're positive, but your sister isn't? And what does that mean for your children? And when do you tell them? And that's why in the UK, it can take one or two years to go through genetic testing and counselling for people who are positive to decide, do they want surgery? Do they want follow-up? Because it's really, it's like having an HIV test. It's fine if it's negative, but if it's positive, the implications are huge. But here we've got strict criteria, like the geneticist asking, and often we'll do it for you. If you know the family history, they can then go back through hospital records and find out. But it's based on how many people in your family are affected and at what age. And if you are at a higher risk, it may be that there are gene clusters that we haven't identified yet. So there could be something going on in your family we just haven't worked out what it is. And that's why you'll still have, like you, Jess, the regular mammograms and MRIs to keep an eye on you. So I want to just quickly um, chime in because when we're talking about these these um, genes or, or uh, genetic mutations that are implicated in, in cancers, um, 
people have these genes to begin with. But what happens is there are mutations that occur that mean the genes are no longer working properly and that can lead to the development exactly. of cancer. And so the BRCA1 and the BRCA2, they just stand for breast cancer gene one and two. Um, normally they are repair genes. So they're surveilling ourselves and making sure that errors don't occur. When they stop working because they're mutated, now errors can occur and that can lead to cancer because cancer is a, a disease of cumulative mutations. And so, you know, when you're going for the testing, they're looking for those mutations in those BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. There's some other genes that are implicated as well, um, as Liz noted. And most of these are inherited mutations. There yeah. are some mutations that we call are, that are acquired, and those are through like lifetime exposure of carcinogens and UV radiation. Um, but we, with these two, this is why the family history is so important because these are often inherited through your lineage. So if your, you know, family had it, it's it's possible you inherited it, and and so on and so forth. Now, Liz, we're talking about genetics, but can we talk about other risk factors, other things that increase risk? Are there things that are protective? You know, we get asked a lot about how pregnancy impacts breast cancer risk and things yeah. like birth control and, and stuff. Yeah. So it's it's really hard. There are things that you can control and things that you can't and things that you shouldn't think about when you're worrying about your risk of breast cancer. So a lot of it is to do with estrogen. Estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer, but it stimulates estrogen positive breast cancers to grow. And studies have looked at millions of women and said, it's, we think it's related to your lifetime exposure to estrogen. So if you start having periods before the age of 11 and your menopause is after the age of 55, you've had regular periods for a lot longer than someone who started early and had an early menopause. Likewise, if you've never had children, you've had unbroken periods compared to a young mum who had kids at 16 and 18 and 20 and 23. If you had children at 40, then your risk is slightly higher because you've had children later in life. The same goes for breastfeeding. But the actual increase in risk is really, really, really small. It's about an extra half a woman in 100 or 1,000. And I don't want anyone to think, I'm not going to go on the pill because it might increase the risk of breast cancer. Yes, it might, but there are things you can do to stop it. So these are things you've associated. If you're on the pill or HRT for more than 10 years, that can increase your risk. It is added hormones. But the three big things that you can do, they're actually quite hard to hear, to really reduce your risk are cut down how much you drink. People don't realize alcohol is a carcinogen. It causes breast cancer. And actually, if you drink and smoke, you're two or three times more likely to get head and neck cancer in your mouth. If you've had breast cancer, you shouldn't drink more than five units a day because it can also increase the risk of recurrence. The second thing, and this is really hard to talk about, is to get your weight into a healthy range because being overweight increases the chance of you getting 13 cancers, including breast, partly because the more fat you have after the menopause, the more estrogen you make. And the third thing is exercise. We know that regular aerobic and weight-bearing exercise can reduce the risk of you getting a lot of cancers. But it's boring and it's not sexy it's, to talk about. It's not and sexy. It's, and and it's, and it's you know, you're not buying a supplement. You're not buying a this. No, you're, you're not. You know, I'm not going to make millions by telling right. people to stop drinking. <laughs> and, and and you know, it's, it's uh, we've we've actually gotten quite a bit of heat about talking about the link of obesity in particular to a variety yeah, of, I of have. health issues. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there is a range of healthy body weights. Either extreme is not healthy. Um, there are 
health risks associated with with either you know too too low adiposity, too high adiposity. Yeah. and um, there are and there are very overweight people who don't get cancer, and skinny triathletes, vegan triathletes like my co-author who do. still got breast right. cancer. Yes, you think, exactly. Well, what's the point in training and eating lettuce if I'm going to get cancer anyway? But it's but it's all about it's, it's all about population and and risk yes. and and mediating those. And I and I love. You know, you bring up the the uh, hormonal birth controls and things like that, and that's like this huge trend on social media where all these, you know, misinformation sites are claiming that contraception is causing cancer. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's, rubbish. it's a lot I, more. Yeah, it's a lot I more. I did a video. Than that. The risk is tiny. And actually, yes. pregnancy can kill. Pregnancy yes. has a lot of morbidity. Postnatal mental health is huge. Abortions exactly. aren't fun. Well, I won't go Absolutely. into what's happening in the States. Contraception is good for helping with migraines and acne. It is a good, safe drug. Yeah. No, and 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 I love I love that you bring that up because, you know, we wanna we wanna also address a lot of the myths about things like seed cycling and hormone replacement therapy and contraception. I've been on hormonal contraception since I, you know, I was a teenager. And, you know, I yeah, I mean, there might be a risk that it might increase my probably already pretty low risk of breast cancer. I have no familial history at all. Um but the risks of not being on it for me personally are much, much higher. And it exactly. alleviates, I had severe, you know, super heavy bleeding, um, cramps to the point where I could not function for the yeah, first three I days did. of my cycle. You know, I mean, it allows me to, to function and yeah. prevents pregnancy because I am child free by choice, you know, and, and yeah. you know, those are the things that are important when you're talking about your own personal health. I know. It's like people don't stop smoking even though, even though they know it can cause lung cancer. But suddenly the pill, which is a tiny impact, is all over the news. It's crazy, right. isn't it? I know. I know. Yes, we have lots to say about that, Liz, but another time. <laughs> um, so, Liz, what do you do? You have any, you know, final messages? I know we're wrapping up. And just to be clear, you know, this episode was dedicated to screening and early detection. And of course, we could have another 30 episodes on, on this topic and, and you know, treatments and, and all that stuff. But do you have any takeaways that you wish more people knew about this topic? I think the first thing to say is finding a change in your breast is really, really scary. But you do need to know how to look and how to feel. And if you find something, tell someone and get it checked out because the mental anxiety of not doing it is awful. Most people will be referred very quickly to see a breast surgeon. We don't have waiting lists. We will get you seen. We will get you sorted. I think it's really important just to be self-aware. And if you are concerned about your risk, then try and live as healthy a lifestyle as possible. And I'd say the treatments are getting better and better. The survival of breast cancer is getting better all the time. People with metastatic breast cancer are living longer. Even the new vaccine for HER2-positive breast cancers, it's not as bad as you think. Most people don't need chemotherapy. Most people go on to live for a long, long time. And, oh. and, and there's also the new world of, of a CAR T based immunotherapies. I've been working oh, on a lot immune, of projects. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. Yeah. We just published a paper, um, you know, with, with MCF7, it's a breast cancer cell line that we use to create little yeah. tumors. The data are really promising. Um, you know, and every day we get closer and closer to, to more effective treatments with less side effects, which is the goal. Exactly. Yeah. Can I just say, I get so emotional when, when I hear you talk about these things because science and medicine are just so amazing and really just 
Amazing. It's, Thank you. When I think of what's changed in the last 10 years, it's, it is unbelievable. It really it is. It really is. Um, Liz, we want to thank you so very much for your time, your expertise. You were such a treat to have on for our very last Aww. episode of the season. Um, and, and to our listeners, you know, Andrea, before I hand it over to you to wrap up, we just want to thank you for your continued support, for tuning in. Um, you know that this is a passion project for Andrea and for me. We feel science communication, science literacy is of the utmost importance and you know we we became kind of popular during covid but we want we have so much more to share with you outside of covid um klaus really right now when we're wrapping up my dog is making noises i'm sorry um but really thank you um you know it isn't always sexy but these things are important um and again just thank you so much for being here thank you liz thank you listeners thank you everyone thank you science thank you medicine andrea take us home <laughs> yes i'm gonna <laughs> echo all of that liz it was so great to have you on um i think it's really going to resonate with our listeners. Um, and, and again, um, we will share the links for, um, Liz's new memoir under the knife, um, coming out and, um, all of that on our show notes. We'll also reshare it when this, when this episode goes live. Um, remember if you want more unbiased science, please consider supporting us through our sub stack for $5 a month. You're supporting our efforts. Um, and it gives you access to our private Facebook group, our monthly Q and A's, and you also get to submit questions to be answered on podcasts as well as vote on future podcast episode topics. So check it out at theunbiasedsipod.substack.com. And remember, we are recording video now, so please make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Even if you're not going to stream it on there, um, check it out at youtube.com at unbiasedsipod. Um, Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. We hope you learned a thing or two. We will, of course, continue to provide tons of other science and health-related content on our social media channels. Throughout the summer, even when we're not dropping new pod episodes, so be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Check, catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.